Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. When we think about Cahokia, we may think of European settlers stumbling onto a ghost town. The mounds outside Collinsville, Illinois, hosted a thriving settlement. It was bigger than London in A.D. 1250, with as many as 40,000 residents. Yet something happened around the year 1200. People abandoned the settlement. And by 1400, what was once a city was a near wasteland. So what happened to those residents? Could the mounds city's abandonment present a cautionary tale. It's a romantic idea, but a new paper suggests it's incomplete at best and at worst downright inaccurate. It was published yesterday in American Antiquity, and the study shows that far from quote-unquote vanishing, the indigenous population returned to the Cahokia area. A fresh wave of native peoples repopulated the area, and the study's authors are able to show that by examining the feces they left behind. So joining me to talk about it is A.J. White. He's the lead author on the study and a doctor student in anthropology at UC Berkeley. AJ, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, you looked at the fecal record in the area around Cahokia. Big picture, what did you find about the two centuries preceding European arrival in this area? Sure. Um, I'd say that we found a lot. Um, Prior to our study, I think this was a big kind of gap in the local history. And uh, what we found is that, you know, the, the year 1400 is when Cahokia is said to have been abandoned. Um, but we find that within a century, there seems to be an uptick in the local population um, that continued um, all the way until the mid-1600s. And so there's this modest uh, increase in local population. And we know that this has to be attributable to Native Americans. Um, because the first Europeans in the area didn't arrive until uh, what's called the Marquette Expedition of the 1670s. So we know that there's this second sort of pulse of an indigenous population in the area, and I think it's one that really hasn't been discussed very much um, before now. And you do make a big point of saying that this um, this particular period has been understudied. We're all sort of focused on the point that the population de-escalates. Nobody talked about what happened since. Why do you think that is? Sure. Um, There's a number of reasons. Um, So in a kind of theoretical sense, I mean, I I, I was drawn as well as many people are to the famous Cahokia decline. Um, It's something that, you know, is is really interesting and, you know, I've written about it and I, I think it's well worth our research. But the problem is that I think if we only focus on this, it leaves the audience, which a lot of times is the general public, with a sense of finality as to, you know, the, the Native American presence in this area. And sometimes in, you know, popular science articles and things like that, it's portrayed as this, you know, lost civilization that experienced a total collapse or decay and was a failure and things like that, where you'd be forgiven if you were to think that, okay, well, that must have been the end of, you know, indigenous peoples in this area. Um, but uh, if you look beyond that into the, the falling centuries, um, I think we can construct this set of stories as to what happened. Now, one of the major reasons why this hasn't been a major area of research is because there's really not a lot of archaeological evidence for people living around Cahokia after 1400. But what we wanted to do was use kind of unusual sources of information, including this um, fecal record, which we can talk about in a little bit as to how it works, um, to show that just because there isn't as much archaeological evidence doesn't 
mean that there wasn't people there. And that's what we try to show. And you talked a bit about these these popular science accounts. Um, and I noticed you mentioned, for example, um, Jared Diamond's book, Collapse, where he claimed um, that they ran out of wood and this was just a complete collapse of the civilization. I'm wondering, are people just sort of coming to the wrong conclusions or do you think they're actually flat out wrong in some of these cases? Sure. I mean, without speculating too much as to the reasons why people left Cokia, um, what I can say is that, like, there is this major emphasis on its decline. And, um, again, I, I think it's fine to discuss this and to research it, and I'd be hypocritical, you know, if I, if I said we shouldn't do that because, you know, I've done it in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is if we end the story at 1400, like a lot of people do, and just say, and that's, that's the end, um, you miss out on these centuries of stories that happen afterwards, which I think are fascinating, and, and it... And it leaves people with this sense of finality, like, like that's that. But um, I think if you look to the falling centuries, it's not a closed book. It's actually one that's open. And you can see how uh, indigenous people have still been able to be active in this area um, right up until the present. So let's talk about that fecal record. Um, You write in this paper very confidently that this is human poop, not animal poop. And this is so long ago. How do you know that for sure? Sure. Um, So it's more of a uh, 99% as opposed to, you know, this is 100% certainty. Sure. Um, And, uh, you know, as with a lot of things in the past, you can't be entirely certain. But here's what we do. We make an argument that the fecal record is attributable to humans. um, And it works this way. Um, So these molecules that we discuss are the um, byproducts of the um, basically microbes eating cholesterol in our stomach. And so anytime you take in cholesterol, so, you know, you're in St. Louis, if you're having some um, barbecue for lunch, you can participate along with this right now. Um, <laughs> that food in your stomach turns into um, a different molecule called caprosinol because the microbes take a little nibble off of cholesterol and it makes it something new. Now, it doesn't always break down that way in other animals. And in humans, that's the, the main way that we do it. And we produce way more caprosinol um, than almost any other animal that we've studied. Um, you know, the, the next closest ones are maybe, you know, uh, a tenth of what we make. Mm-hmm. And so there are several other animals that can make these molecules that we're looking at. Um, a lot of them are large domesticated animals like pigs and uh, sheep and cows. Um, and at the Cahokia area, in a, you know, pre-European contact sense, we can kind of get around this problem by knowing that those domesticated animals were part of that Colombian exchange. You know, they came in with Europeans, so we know that they weren't there. Um, and because we know that, you know, Cahokia was, um, you know, humans were pretty much, the, they were the large animal in this landscape. They might have been occasional bears or something like that, that, that could have made a slight contribution to the record. But we make the argument that what's controlling changes in that population record are people. And what helps us feel pretty comfortable about it is that in the uh, time periods where we have archaeological evidence for what was happening with population at Cokia, that's basically between 1000 and 1400 AD, um, our fecal record matches up quite nicely with what's been done before. Hmm. The only difference is that our record continues another 500 years um, beyond what had been really out there um, previously. So we wanted to kind of capitalize on that and say, okay, well, what can we use this record um, that's kind of in this uncharted territory to, to discuss um, what happened after Cahokia? So tell me about that process of gathering these next centuries worth of the fecal record. How did you go about getting these samples? 
Sure. So um, this happened in 2015, and I was um, very fortunate to work with a crew out of Indiana State um, who were far more experienced uh, than me at this. But what we do is we go to a... Um, a lake, and right outside of Cahokia is a lake called Horseshoe Lake, and the idea is that this is a place where those fecal molecules I was telling you about would collect. Uh, you have to imagine a, um, a time period where there is no plumbing and you know, nowhere where you'd really have a very specific place to go to the bathroom. So probably it's just kind of all dispersed out onto the landscape, and you can imagine how after it rained, that would wash some of the poop, um, I'm not sure if that's cool for the radio, but uh, into, the, uh, into the lake, and it would collect. And so what we do is we go into the lake and we take what's called a sediment core, which is a vertical um, column, think like a big pipe that we're pushing into the, into the bottom of the lake. And that picks up a, um, a, a, a large section of lake mud. And how we can use it is the, the bottommost part of that sediment, that lake mud, uh, is the oldest because it's you know, at the very bottom. And the top is basically what's happening at the present. And so we can date the core um, using um, a number of dating means um, to say, okay, well, at any depth, if we find, you know, more or less of these fecal molecules, we can say there's more or less people um, in the surrounding area. We're talking to A.J. White. He's the lead author on a new study um, in American Antiquity that came out this week. He's also a doctoral student in anthropology at the University of California, Berkeley. Um, A.J., so you've got these samples and you're going way back. What do your findings suggest about the size of the population in the years following this, this quote-unquote abandonment? Sure. Um, I think that's a great thing to point out. I mean, I'm not trying to suggest here that this is of the same levels um, that were experienced during the, the height of Cahokia several hundred years before. It's a modest increase. Um, and, you know, we can't use, you know, absolute numbers and saying it was 1,000 people or 500 people um, using this method. We can just say more or less. But it does register, and it's, and it's, a, it's a, a notable increase that I think warrants an investigation. And um, when we start to look into this increase, it really matches up with a lot of um, environmental and cultural changes that would explain why we find the increase uh, where it is in the 1600s. Tell me about those environmental or, or cultural changes. What might be some of those factors? Sure. So we can say that um, between the 1500s and 1600s, um, in the core, and um, a colleague of mine, um, Sam, who um, worked this data up earlier, had found that there is an increase in, in, in pollen um, for grasses um, during this period, which suggests that there is a more of a grassland environment during this time period. And right where you are in St. Louis, it's, it's what is known as an ecotone between more, you know, kind of woodland environment and grassland prairie environment, but depending on whether you go east or west. Mm -hmm. And so this is a line that's kind of shifted with time, and perhaps at this period it was more grassland, and that's a habitat that's great for bison. So at that same time period in the 1600s, we know that there's a lot of movement of people going around. It was a terribly fascinating time period. There's a lot of warfare going on, a lot of migration, and just people going from place to place. Um, so if you were, a, you know, a community that practiced bison hunting, maybe at this time period, this was a good place to live. Mm -hmm. And um, it just so happens that at that sort of um, peak in the, the grass pollen, that's where we find the peak in our fecal molecules. 
And it also coincides with an increase in charcoal in the core at that time, too, which, you know, um, might possibly suggest that there is some controlled burning going on and management of that landscape, um, which indigenous peoples are known to have done um, as, as uh, you know, part of uh, maintaining their, their uh, uh, ecosystem. So um, I, I think that's an interesting environmental change, and it all happens when we have this kind of increase in the population. Hmm. And the cultural changes um, are related to people coming in. And um, if we start with what we know at the time of European contact, it probably relates to a, a group similar to the Illinois Confederation, um, which is a group that had a very different type of life from um, people earlier at Cahokia. Now, you suggest in this study that there's a correlation between the stability in the amount of precipitation and the population size. Do you think that's sort of moving towards a theory of why people initially fled Cahokia as well? Or should we look at those as separate things at this point? Sure. I mean, I think when we look at, you know, causality in the past, um, it, it's rarely that it's one thing. Um, and I think we need to look at everything that we have on the table to help us piece together what might have happened. Now, uh, if we go back in time to, you know, the Mississippian time period of Cahokia, which is the time period it's most famous for from 1,400 A.D., um, you know, in a previous study um, that, that I did as long as, uh, as well as the co-authors on this one, uh, we looked at how there were several environmental changes that happened um, around when people first started to leave Cahokia, uh, including a, the, a coincided a large flood, as well as um, a change to more drought-like conditions. So we had kind of tied um, the possibility that, that um, you know, differences in, in rainfall might have been affecting people there before. And when we look ahead to this time period, as you mentioned, we noticed that it seems that rainfall wasn't changing a whole lot. And, you know, if you're going about your, your way of life for, for decades, it's kind of nice to have a time period where, um, Things are in, in um, a relatively stable state. You can count um, on so, things being the way they were last year. Right. It's, it's nice to have things similar, you know, it, it, and I think that might be uh, at least a partial sort of thing to uh, consider here. Now, eventually, this area did clear out. What does the fecal record and what you looked at in this study tell us about the timing of that? Sure. Um, so after the... Uh, Early 1700s, by about the, you know, maybe 1750, um, the, the fecal uh, stamens start to go into decline once again. Um, and they decline for quite some time, well into the 1800s. And at this point, we're entering the historic period where we have a lot of historic documents, and we know a lot more. And this ties into a, a complicated set of events. Um, we know that there was a continued warfare during this time period. So Europeans arrive on the scene, and there's already this complicated web of alliances between native groups, and they just kind of add to that complication. And uh, we know the Illinois uh, people were allied with the French, and, and so there was uh, warfare going on, which probably wasn't going to at least drive population up. That could have been a reason of um, you know, a way that population could have gone down. Uh, we know that there was diseases um, that started to impact the interior of the continent. Um, and there's been a lot of speculation as to, you know, um, how much of an impact disease had on um, uh, people, you know, throughout time uh, in this region. And uh, we certainly can't, you know, throw that away. It seems that there were, um, you know, outbreaks of, of multiple um, uh, diseases going through in the 1700s, which could have been an impact. Um, 
we know that the environment started to change. So I mentioned how the grasslands peaked in the 1600s, but they started to go away again. So a simple you know, explanation um, explanation might just be that maybe it's no longer as good a place to live for people who are um, looking for that sort of environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and finally, um, we get into, you know, the 1800s where Europeans start to come to the area, but they only come in small numbers. So um, it's not until the, the latter half of the 1800s that the area really starts to boom with, with bigger towns and things like that. Um, so the the declining population here um, is, I think, attributed to a number of factors, and it's active. It's people moving places. It's not just as simple as, um, you know, everyone died or something like that. Um, it's, I think, uh, a really um, interesting mixture of events, and it's not over. I think a lot of it is just they moved elsewhere, which doesn't necessarily mean, you know, the end of a people. So big picture question. We often think of the Cahokia story as one of disappearance, and you say very pointedly that this is actually one of persistence. Why is that important? Sure. Um, you know, there's this, you know, concept of the, the idea of the, uh, you know, disappearing Indian, which is this idea that, you know, the way that um, Native American history has been presented to, um, you know, most of the American public is one that kind of focuses on, on uh, decline as opposed to persistence. So I imagine most school children would be able to talk about, you know, the impact that disease had on indigenous peoples, but would they know as much about the Native American rights movement in the 60s or even Standing Rock more recently? Um, and the fact that matters, there's millions of Native Americans around today, um, and yet, you know, the, the history books don't exactly make that obvious. Um, so I think that's kind of one of the reasons to say, okay, all right, it's true that, you know, Cahokia as an archaeological site does seem to be pretty vacant after 1400. But that's not the end of an indigenous presence in this region and an indigenous use of the area and memory of it. And, you know, I think there's this continuity that can be drawn, um, you know, all the way to the present um, uh, with uh, those that are, you know, around today. So um, rather than seeing this as a, as a closed book, you know, I, I'd like to just kind of open up the chapters a little bit more. Well, A.J. White, anthropology doctoral student at UC Berkeley, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.